two different possible titles for tonight's talk and one is um, being here for spring and the other is embodied spirit and they both have to do with being awake in our bodies for this life I thought I may be sharing my, my first um, spiritual experience that I remember consciously was around Easter time when I was, I think, 11 or so and I was, our family was um, doing a kind of camping, hiking trip we were down in the Shenandoah I don't think we were camping actually I think we were staying in one of the places there but we were um, hiking around and I remember taking off somewhere and I was kind of running somewhere and then, st- and then stopping and then looking out at that view and all of a sudden getting it about beauty that it, not only was it oh that's beautiful like an idea but it was like there was beauty and, and it wasn't separate from me it was like I was part of that and it was now I call it mystical in the sense that it was more of a quality of awareness than the normal story and things I was paying attention to and I noticed it as that something about nature and being so alive in the nature and being in love with beauty um, was really profound and so then I started loving you know, going hiking and being in the woods and stuff more the next real conscious kind of mystical experience came in doing yoga where I would be going to these very vigorous yoga classes and realize that there weren't any thoughts going on anymore there was just this again, this vibrance, this aliveness and it wasn't so much about the beauty of nature but just the um, wonderfulness of being alive and uh, the sense of how mysterious and vivid that was when I wasn't in my normal stories so I continued, I ended up joining a yoga ashram I moved in and stayed in for ten years and, uh, the, and it turned out to be yoga and meditation yoga is a form of meditation and then I moved on to Buddhist meditation but always through my whole life the gateway of the body of movement and yoga and through mindfulness being aware of the body has always been a powerful kind of opening to uh, really the mystery of presence itself so I want to explore tonight with you this gateway of our senses, of the body Um, in the early Theravada texts, and Theravada is one of the schools of Buddhism ultimate spiritual realization has been described in this way touching enlightenment with the body so first, what's enlightenment? and there's many different descriptions but what I would say is it's that freedom that comes from realizing the truth from realizing the truth of what we are from realizing the awareness and love that's really our source and you can have enlightened moments or a more sustained experience of that's the familiar truth and it doesn't mean that the feelings and stories and everything that's difficult doesn't play through but there's a remembrance so this text is saying enlightenment, that freedom, that realization is um, discovered the primary gateway is through being mindful of this embodiment, these senses in other words, it's not an out-of-body experience that you, you experience that freedom by leaving your body and going somewhere else it's through 
this embodiment, through this incarnation. So this week and next week, I think I'd like to explore what that means, this really being fully at home in our lives right through this physical incarnation. One of the poets I've always loved the most, John O'Donohue, who passed away last year, says, one of his, his poems talk about how we need to come home to the temple of the senses. And um, he says, our bodies know that they belong to life, to spirit. Our bodies know that they belong. It is our minds that make our lives so homeless. And by that, my understanding is that um, we get lost in our stories and in that getting lost we forget this belonging. We forget our belonging to this life and this body. We forget our belonging to each other, to the earth, because we're lost in our stories. So the pathway back into the senses, back home, is to wake up from the trance of thinking, which is so much of the training here. It's like the give, and it's not, this is not a diatribe against thought. It's not to stop thinking. I mean, thinking is absolutely a necessary, beautiful, creative part of our aliveness, but it's to have the choice so that we're not off. So that's part one, is to wake up from the trance of thinking and really establish this awakeness. Like you might even check right now if as you're listening, is there a listening and yet still a sense of this aliveness and vibrance of embodiment. One of my friends, when he gives talks on... This is called the first foundation of mindfulness. It's the first training, the first place where we really learn to really arrive. And he says, when you listen to a talk on coming into the body, have 98% of your awareness always coming back again and again to the aliveness in the body. And, tr- and 2% may be listening to the words. And he said, don't worry, because you'll get it. Because the getting it is really the experience of this hereness in the body. So the challenge of really being awake in these bodies is that we have enormous conditioning to be on our way somewhere else. We have all these agendas. And again, uh, John O'Donohue puts it this way. I think this is so well said. We rush through our days in such stress and intensity as if we were here to stay and the serious project of the world depended on us. There's two illusions in there. We're here to stay. It's just as if, you know, we forget that this is passing. You know, what really matters if you really get that this is passing, this life? And then this illusion that the self is at the center of it, you know, that we're, that this kind of um, preoccupation with what do I need, what's going to make me more comfortable, how do I prove my point to others, how do I get others to understand, you know, it's like this preoccupation with selfness. And as we stay in that, that kind of incessant inner dialogue and that leaning forward as if we're tumbling forward always into the next moment, we miss out on this mystery of aliveness that's here. So again, just let's pause. Just check in. Just breathe and feel beingness.
So any inquiry into embodied awareness includes getting really honest, kind of courageously honest about how disembodied we are, how disconnected we are. And it has to be good humor too because it's not like it's our fault. It's like, it's, this is the conditioning, the conditioning of this humanness. I know one teacher describes interviewing children about the, and talking about the importance of the body and asking them, what is it? And the response was, well, it's here to carry around the head, you know. <laughs> so. so our conditioning is to perceive ourselves as separate, to go after the things that we think will enhance and make us feel better, and to avoid those things we think won't. And the main tool we do for going after things and avoiding things is our thinking process. So we spend a lot of time in our thought process that's going to tell us how to get what we want and avoid what we don't want. And if you just stop thinking for a moment and just pay attention, there's a kind of chronic existential clenching that you can find, which is the energetic sense of being a separate self and things aren't quite okay. So even when nothing major is going wrong, there's no overt drama in your life, as you get sensitive and pay attention, and you'll feel it in the gut. There's this kind of like existential sense of kind of defending ourselves against what might be around the corner. So the metaphor that for many people is helpful is that we want the weather to be a certain way in our lives. As a separate self, we want the weather to be that people cooperate with us. We want it to be that you know we're nourished on all the different levels of... Uh, physical and emotional and mental. We want the weather a certain way and inevitably it's not. And so we're in reaction. So rather than just being in this aliveness, we're busy trying to control things. And not to take my word for it, just to pause now and then and sense, well, what's going on? Is there a kind of an open presence to be with how it is? Or is there some self-sense trying to maneuver through, trying to make our way through the day. So you you can even check right now and uh, just, if you close your eyes and just ask the question, is there anything between me and being at home in my body right this moment? Is there anything between me and being at home in my body in this moment. And you might notice that perhaps as you pay attention to your physical experience or something unpleasant and not wanting to feel unpleasantness is in the way. Or it might be that as you intend to just be here in your body, it's not a pain but more just a kind of anxious, agitated feeling. Or maybe it's even more subtle, just a kind of uneasiness, that existential clutch I talked about that's not always so overt but it doesn't allow us to fully feel relaxed and at home. So part of this inquiry is, you know, are we at home in the moment? 
in the body. And what happens is that when there is that existential clutch or when there's physical unpleasantness or when there's in some way emotional unpleasantness, we leave. So much of this talk is going to be about how do you stay when the conditioning is to exit. Now, this kind of splitting from our body, this leaving, is very much reinforced by the culture. We're in a culture that basically tries to dominate and control nature, control the body. Pain isn't considered to be natural. It's a problem. It is framed as a problem. Grief is a problem that has a timetable that we're supposed to work it out by a certain point. Aging is a problem. Dying is a problem. Do you see what I mean? It's not natural changing of weather. It's a problem. So there's a separating out from this aliveness and trying to control it. Somebody sent me this, that a father was at a beach with his children when a four-year-old son went up, when his four-year-old son ran up to him, grabbed his hand and led him to the shore where a seagull lay dead in the sand. Daddy, what happened to him? The son asked. Well, he died and went to heaven, the dad replied. The boy thought about that for a moment and said, did God throw him back down here? You know? (laughs) So there's a sense of being kind of apart from the natural flow, and especially in the West there's this worshipping of rationality, there's a sense that life's a problem to solve and that we're supposed to be thinking about it and we get uneasy when we're not trying to figure things out. And I ask this sometimes here, have you noticed how many moments we're trying to figure something out? Way more than we need to is really the answer, but there's a different kind of a, a valuing in indigenous cultures where It's not always the left-brain thinking process. There's a real valuing of sensing a connectedness and an intelligence and a belonging to the natural world, to have the senses awake. Again, I share with you a story someone sent me about a a scout named Skeeter McGee in the Old West, and he was known far and wide and incredibly respected at that time for his amazing attunement. He was the kind of guy that could tell you anything about who had been he could track things and tell you who had been there, what animal, what human. He understood the weather from an intuitive place and human nature also. So as the story goes, two cowboys came upon Skeeter lying on his stomach with his ear to the ground and one stopped and said to the other, you see that guy Skeeter? Yes, says the other. Look, he's listening to the ground. He can hear things for miles in any direction. Just then Skeeter looks up. Covered wagon, he says, about two miles away. Have two horses, one brown, one white. Man, woman, child, household effects in the wagon. Incredible, says the cowboy to his friend. Skeeter knows how far away they are, how many horses, what color they are, who's in the wagon, what's in the wagon. Amazing. Skeeter looks up and says, ran over me about a half hour ago. Sometimes you do have to figure things out, I guess. So we're talking about the different things that really create a split from our body, and one is really how the Western culture does it, and others there's this really, this mistrust of the body, as I mentioned. We medicate, we institutionalize birth and death. It takes its toll on children, you know, in terms of more technology, more video games, less sense of being embodied, um, But the deepest, I think, it comes through some of the religious traditions, and this includes 
Buddhism, where there's there is some sense of a, and it, and it doesn't include Buddhism in the sense of meditation training, but in the sense of if you read some of the early early scriptures in the Pali Canon, there's a mistrust of the body and of sensuality and sexuality and the seduction of the senses and pleasure. It's like be wary of getting caught, being addicted, that the physical world is in some way less pure and less worthy and that spirituality means rising above the body. So I just wanted to set set the context that we've got a lot of forces going culturally, religious, existential, that have us leave the body and take refuge in our thinking processes. Perhaps the most compelling is that to the degree we've had emotional wounding in this lifetime and it's felt like too much, we leave the body because emotional wounding is held in the body and when we can't handle it, our best way to deal with it is to exit out. And I'm going to talk next week more about working with trauma in the body, but just to say that when we experience that pain of of severed belonging, of having unmet needs for love and for understanding and for safety, it becomes not safe to be in our physical body. So we leave. Now what happens is that when we leave it's still there and it actually perpetuates a sense of being not safe and not okay. So the, the teaching is that when it's difficult we exit out and the understanding is not that when we're in pain, if you have a migraine, if something's going on, that you shouldn't do something to take care of it. It's just that we need to be honest about how much we leave our bodies. I like the way Carlin says it. He says, my motto is, no pain, no pain. (laughs) He also wrote this. He said, they show you how detergents take out blood stains. I think if you've got a t-shirt with blood stains all over it, maybe your laundry isn't your biggest problem. (laughs) So I'm just kind of being light about it. But the point is not that if there's pain that we're supposed to sit here and try to feel where it is in our body and open to it. You, do, you be intelligent and be compassionate. And unless we start catching on to our flinch response to discomfort, we're always on the run. Unless we catch on to how much when things don't feel good in our body and heart, we start going into stories of who's wrong and leave our bodies and leave our hearts, we don't heal. So, just to take a a closer look, there's some core principles here in terms of re-entering this embodiment and one of them is that unpleasantness or angst or difficulty that we experience is absolutely inevitable. I mean, there's no way if you're born in a body on planet Earth to not feel some of that clutch of, of separateness and something could go wrong and some of that uncomfortable, restless stuff. For most of us, we couldn't bypass the wounding. We're in a culture. So the uncomfortableness is inevitable. Suffering is optional. In other words, we don't have to be trapped in it. And the second principle, very much related, is that the suffering is caused by running away from the pain. That in the moment that we're resisting or trying to control or get away from this raw level of discomfort in our body, In those moments, our identity gets locked in and we suffer. 
so we'll look at this a bit more. But the reason that, and I, the language I like for this, is that when we leave our body, rather than being with what's difficult, it's like unlived life. Our suffering comes from unlived life. And that feels really important to me. I, many of you have, I think, heard me describe um, Carl Jung, who says, the greatest influence on our own life and our children is the unlived life of the parents. Let me say that again. The greatest influence on our own lives and our children is the unlived life of the parents. When we leave our body and we don't live the life that's here in our body, the wounding is locked in. The sense of victimization is locked in. The sense of fear that something's going to go wrong is locked in. And that affects every relationship we're in. The relationship with our own hearts, with each other, and our world. So the big inquiry is how to live that unlived life. So just to name what happens when we wall off experience. What happens when we leave. And one of the things that I've found a lot in working with people that are, you know, have really disconnected from their bodies is, and this is a very primal level, is there's their tiredness. That it takes energy to keep leaving our body. That to wall off what's difficult, the, the angst or the fear or the restlessness and leave in our thoughts takes energy. So it, so it creates tiredness. There's actually more physical unpleasantness because when we contract against something that contracting itself creates other parts of the body where there's not a flow of energy. That's one level. Now the second level, when we leave our bodies, okay, we leave because there's something in there we don't want to feel and be with, but what happens is that some part of us knows that. So we are stuck in a chronic apprehension. People that have chronic anxiety, chronic apprehensions, because they've left the raw intensity of the fear but something in us knows that there's something there we haven't dealt with. So there's always a sense that at any moment it's going to break through, that something's going to go wrong. And there's a kind of story we have in us that something's around the corner that we can't handle because of that. Okay, so there's the tiredness that happens. There's kind of more physical unpleasantness because we're contracting against something in our body. There's chronic apprehension. And then the fourth thing I want to mention when we leave our bodies is that in the moments that we contract against pain, our sense of self is organized around that. So our sense of who we are gets hitched to that resistance. And we become a victimized self or a scared self or a resisting self or a judgmental self, but we become hitched to the way we are trying to avoid pain. Any resistance and we're hitched to the resistance. So rather than remembering the beauty or the love or the awareness, we're very busy working hard to resist the life that's here. And our sense of self becomes organized around that. So a metaphor for you about how this happens. And if you imagine that you go to a party and there's somebody at the party you want to avoid, okay? 
There's just somebody at the party, and you like a whole lot of other people at the party, and um, the food's good, and the ambiance is nice, but there's one person you want to avoid, okay? So it might seem like your movement is free around talking to other people, and, and you're fitting into your party objectives, it's all okay. But on some level, your moves are going to be determined by wanting to avoid contact. So it's not as free as it seems. And how open-hearted and joyful and affectionate can you really feel when your heart is in some way tight against one person that's in the room? So the person at the party is a part of our inner experience. That's the idea here. And when there's part of our inner experience that we're not at home with, we're not being with, we're not open to, there's in some way a, a, a basic sense of not being at home. We can't really relax in our lives. It's unlived life. And it's not until we live the unlived life that we come home to more wholeness and more freedom. So again, just to check in. I'd like to keep checking in tonight. Just, you might sense in your body how much you've left just in listening. And without any judgment, just notice what it means to come back into this awareness of the sensations that are here, of the life of the body. And again, just to have that honest inquiry, is there anything between me and being at home with the life of the body? And if there is, not to judge that, but more just appreciate the mindfulness of it, because that's the gateway. In other words, the purpose is not to be at home with what's here, but to just recognize where we might not be at home, and hold that with compassion. Is there anything right in this moment between me and being at home in the aliveness of this body right now? Am I here? Right now? Right here? You'd like you can open your eyes. So the the pathway to living the unlived life is is learning to stay. And the beginning, and the reason I keep asking that question, is there anything between me and being at home, is you can't start living the unlived life unless you start noticing, oh, there's unlived life. That's the honest beginning. It's okay. And and if there's judgment, that creates more unlived life. Judgment is a subtle pulling away. So if you can notice, oh, I'm not at home, or it doesn't feel good, or I don't want to be here, and just without any judging, just notice that. That opens up the gateway. 
So um, I started a bit with my own personal story, and as I mentioned, for me the openings to really feeling uh, aliveness and mystery and spirit were for, through, you know, moving around outside in nature and beauty, and then yoga. So there was a lot of um, freedom in it because I found that when I, and I found this with other things too, but when I was very physical, it kind of shut down that story of the mind and I felt more alive and full and vibrant. But along with all that and along with the, the blessings of yoga, there was a shadow side, which is I was very attached to the good feelings of yoga and I was also attached to being a good yogi. In other words... I, my body has um, something called hypermobility. And when you're hypermobile, the good news is for your early years, you look like a great yogi. I mean, you can bend and do all this stuff, you know, with your body that other people can't do. And so I looked really, for um, a bunch of years, I was like, if somebody was watching me, I looked like I... We had a, something called the Yoga Olympics in one of our ashrams. And <laughs> talking about competition here. And I, and I, and I won the... Um, the competition for wheel pose, you know, wheel pose is the back bend, and, I, you know, holding it for 18 minutes. Now, in case you think I'm bragging, so hypermobility is it's just genetic, and you have it for a while, but then, as the years go on, the very places that are hypermobile, i.e., that are real stretchy, get very arthritic and very fragile, and you can't do a damn thing. You can't stretch at all. <laughs> So I went from this, like, you know, ace of a yogi to, like, you know, you know, it was hard. So it was, it was rough because not, I was attached to the image and so on, but even more attached to the pleasantness of, you know, being able to stretch and breathe and feel the aliveness. And what happened, and this, this all kicked in about five years ago, is I'd start doing yoga and um, I'd keep hurting myself. And it basically was really unpleasant. So I started leaving my body. It's like I didn't want to be there. And, you know, I still tried to do whatever exercises I could, but a story set in of my body kind of betraying me, disappointing me, um, becoming my enemy. And anyone that's gotten sick suddenly knows that's a possibility where it's, you can all of a sudden really feel um, deep betrayal. And, um, and it's, it's difficult, it's painful. And so I would have a lot of, you know, I'd leave my body and then do a lot of mental obsessing of how do I get, how do I make this better and what did I do wrong and, and that kind of thing. So just as I've been describing tonight, unlived life, I was no longer in the body, I was at war with it, split off, judging, evaluating. So then at one retreat I went to, I remember, you know, trying to do a little yoga and encountering the same wall and and then just this huge grief welled up in me, um, this deep, deep, deep grief about missing the aliveness that I had enjoyed so much. And I had this idea that I couldn't find that aliveness because my body was no longer working well. And so I started to... So I just stayed with the grief in the body. What I'd been doing was avoiding that grief and that loss and just in that whole judging, fixing, obsessing. I just stayed. Much as we've explored here many times breathing with that kind of hollow, achy, empty feeling. And then starting to feel in that presence with the grief very um, tender, kind of subtle aliveness of presence in my body. And, and then it was like, oh, this thing that I'm mourning 
is here, just not here the ways I used to go get it. And um, started re-entering my body in a different way that like I couldn't do it the way I did it before which was almost carefree and careless because I had to take such good care. But taking care took on the kind of um, mode of just deep listening. Like I'd listen and sense, well, what what does this body need in this moment? And just stretch, but not just assume I can just stretch like this, but just to this amount. And what happened was I started to experience a deeper sense of presence and aliveness doing much, much less and not looking so good but because the quality of presence was there, presence in the body. Mostly, I think, what started arising was this sense that um, the pain and the fragility and so on, it was rather than being the great yogi or the bad yogi, there was just a sense of presence with different uh, sensations moving through. There wasn't so much ownership. And, and that was the shift. And this is what I call the gateway to living the unlived life, is that when we're willing to be with what's in our bodies, pleasant or unpleasant, rather than being a self that's reacting, we arrive in a presence that's liberating. But it comes from being willing to open to unpleasant and pleasant. See, I had been a junkie for just the pleasant. Okay, so this is someone else's story. This is a a spiritual teacher who, um, long after her first experience of awakening, had a serious bout of cancer. Here's what she writes. A large abdominal tumor was removed, and with it, all that I had clung to as certainties in my life. I quit work and I stopped the spiritual teaching. I turned to anything I thought might help me change what had led to that cancer, from acupuncture to depth therapy. I became humble before the body. That was 15 years ago, and now I can now say that it was the biggest turning point and awakening of all. I had used my body to practice. Now I had to inhabit it, respect it, love it with all the feminine force and nurturing and understanding I had withdrawn into my spiritual life. Keeping my heart in my body became my practice, and it has become glorious. Even the first awakenings into perfection and grace did not come close to showing me the joy of living in the body, in the senses, in each moment. I love my life in a new way. This has become the place of freedom. Freedom in this changing body with its pains and its pleasures. So I share these stories with you because inevitably for all of us it's going to be pleasure and pain. And our relationship has to be unconditional if we're to really embody this beingness and really experience that that freedom. And the challenges will have each step of the way the conditioning to not like this and like that. And that'll mean we're not at home. So the first step, as I mentioned, is to notice, just to sense, am I at home? And if it's no, I'm not, just to include that in awareness. That just means there's some don't like this and want that going on. And if we can notice it, just the way I noticed, oh, don't like the way my body's feeling, want to just change it, fix it, get away. If you can notice it, then you'll feel a sense of yearning or grief, some calling to be more present. 
if it's pain, and we'll talk about this more, it takes a certain courage to stay and to stay, and yet the freedom in staying is profound. Here's Annie Lindbergh. She writes this. She says, Go with the pain. Let it take you. Open your palms and your body to the pain. It comes in waves like a tide, and you must be open as a vessel lying on a beach, letting it fill you up and then retreating, leaving you empty and clear with a deep breath. It has to be as deep as the pain. One reaches a kind of inner freedom from the pain, as though the pain were not yours, but your bodies. She talks about laying your pain at the altar of the spirit. So even though I'm, I'm talking about pain, I could be talking about physical pain, I could be talking about that existential clutch, I could be talking about pleasure that we want more of. The teaching is this courage to open unconditionally to the life of the body and in that opening discover that we don't own this body, we don't have to control this body, that this aliveness is an expression of spirit and that we can have a profound presence with it. I want to invite you again just to pause. The same inquiry in this pause just sense is there anything between me and being at home in this body, in this life? And if there's something difficult, something that you don't want to be with, to be very forgiving and compassionate towards that. If you sense an anxiety, a discomfort, if there's some voice in your mind saying, I just don't want to be with this, then it's this too, let that be there too, that not liking. It's the presence that frees us, just the noticing. You might sense the possibility of not resisting, of opening unconditionally to exactly what you're experiencing right now, if that's a possibility, just softening and relaxing so that you just experiment a little right now with what can happen if there's an intention to truly allow this life just as it is, a kind of surrendering presence. It's as if your whole soul is saying yes to life. It's the deepest gesture of love to this life. 
to come into that stillness, to feel the pleasantness and unpleasantness, the vibrancy, and let your whole being be the space that's allowing, saying yes. When the resisting relaxes completely, there's a sense of flow. When you stop trying to control or direct or avoid, you can discover this flow that life's been unfolding itself and an ease in how life is flowing. It can be almost magical that you don't know where it'll take you. There's just this creative aliveness unfolding itself. It's like a stream that knows how to go over and around rocks. Just this life is playing itself. You are this life. Your life itself. Vibrating. vibrant, luminous. And the more that there's that allowing and not resisting, the more you can sense that alert inner stillness, that vast space, empty heart, It's the very essence of our being. I'm taking a few full breaths. Come on back. I want to close tonight with um, reminding us of a story that do you remember last year when the Washington Post did that experiment and they put Joshua Bill in uh, the subway. How many of you remember this? Good. Some I'll, so some I'll, I'll tell the rest of you I'll remind you. So he's one of the most famous violinists in the world. And he was playing in the subway one of the most intricate pieces ever written with a violin, playing it on a violin worth $3.5 million. Several weeks before he had he had played to a sold-out audience in, in Boston, $100 a seat. So they put him in a subway and they had him play this during rush hour, thousands and thousands and thousands of people going through. Now, this was a time when everybody was on their way to work. And very, very few even slowed down. A couple of children tried to slow down and listen, but their parents pushed them on. He collected $32. <laughs> Okay, six people stopped and stayed a while. Just to take that in for a moment, that people were on their way to work, but here's this amazing musician. Basically, here's beauty. Here's beauty. And people rushed by it. And to me, um, this exploration this evening is about how not to rush by the beauty in our lives, not to rush by the love in our lives, not to rush so much that we lose touch 
with what's truly who we are. And when people come and talk to me and they're really upset, it's you, underneath the dis- there's kind of a despairing of skimming the surface on the way to the finish line. And, and rather than being people on our way busy, on our way to work or on our way to the finish line, this body is a gateway to a very magical living universe. And if even a little bit more this week, and we talked about being here for spring, um, you pause, just as we pause tonight, you pause and just feel the wildness that's here because it's wild. You know? It's part of the reason we leave it. It's because it's not in control. It's the weather that's playing through the universe, through these bodies. It's the elements we're made of the stars. It's wild. Pausing and coming home to that makes us available to this life. I will close again just a brief meditation, if you will. You might take a few full breaths. And share a few verses from the poet Dana Falls called Trusting Prana, which is the life energy. Trust the energy that courses through you. Just trust the energy that courses through you. Trust and then take surrender even deeper. Be the energy. Trust the energy that courses through you. Trust and then take surrender even deeper. Be the energy. Don't push anything away. Follow each sensation back to its source in vastness and pure presence. Emerge so new, so fresh that you don't know who you are. Welcome in the season of monsoons. Be the bridge across the flooded river and the surging torrent underneath. Be unafraid of consummate wonder. Be the energy and blaze a trail across the clear night sky like lightning. Dare to be your own illumination. We close as we open just to feel the intention of the heart in whatever language resonates for you, this sincerity about living the life fully, about realizing the truth, the love and awareness that is our source. May our awakening be of benefit May it ripple out and touch all beings. May there be healing. May there be peace. May all beings be free.
The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you would like to contact the Insight Meditation Community of Washington to make a donation or to learn more about our programs, please visit our website at www.imcw.org.